My name is David Lopez, co-dean of Rutgers Law School in Newark, New Jersey, and this is The Power of Attorney. I am very fortunate today to have Professor Carlos Ball, Distinguished Professor of Law and Judge Frederick Lacey Scholar with us today. He just completed a book, one of many, and I've been trying to get him on this podcast for a long time. He is a nationally recognized expert on LGBT rights and the First, First Amendment, and he's also just a plain wonderful guy. So uh, welcome, Professor Ball. Thank you, David. It's, thank you for your kind words, and thank you for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's start out by having you tell us a little bit about yourself, your, your journey into academia, your journey to Rutgers Law School. Well, uh, I was born in uh, Caracas, Venezuela. I grew up there. Um, I moved to the United States when I was a teenager, and I went to finish high school and went to college in the Boston area and then went to law school at Columbia Law School. Graduated in 1990. I'm, this is going to be my 30th year since I graduated from law school, which is a little hard for me to wrap my head around. But um, after law school, I clerked for a judge on the Massachusetts Supreme Court. And then I was a public defender for a couple of years. I worked for the Legal Aid Society of Manhattan, then I worked for the city of New York. And I enjoyed practice very much, but I kept running into interesting legal issues that I wanted to kind of sink my teeth into, and I didn't have time to do that as a practicing attorney. That's when I started to consider coming into academia. And where did you start out? Talk to us about your academic career. So, yeah, sure. So I started teaching uh, in 1995 at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. I was there for uh, eight years, and then I moved to Penn State, taught at the law school there for five years, and then in 2008 I, I started what is without a doubt the best job in legal academia, which is being a law professor at Rutgers Law School. So I've been, I've been at Rutgers. This is my uh, 11th uh, academic year. Great. Great answer, too. <laughs> I hope you didn't say that just because the dean is interviewing No, you. the dean had nothing to do with that. I would have said that, no matter who's interviewing me. Well, talk about Rutgers as a center of scholarship. Yeah, you know, I've, all three universities where I've had the honor of uh, working have been large research universities. Um, and uh, I one of the reasons why I chose to come to Rutgers is because uh, as research university it it has the resources it has the it provides the support uh, and it was quite clear when I was considering this move that there are just some amazing excellent scholars on the faculty and, and scholarship is one of these interesting things it's it's crucial to what we do but not always very easy to advertise to the wider world and and um, I can say, having been here now for 11 years, that one of the best things about my experience here has been to be in an institution that not only values teaching as it should, that not only does it value service as it should, but that also values uh, scholarship. Uh, you look across the board and, and we have you know, leading scholars in every major uh, area of the law. And that's one of the wonderful things that makes coming to work uh, so interesting and so enriching uh, for me on a daily basis. That's wonderful. And I don't want to embarrass you on the air, but you are a very popular professor. And I, you just reminded me that you're teaching two first-year classes, correct? That's right. I'm teaching a property uh, class this semester and also uh, constitutional law. So, so what sparked your interest initially in legal academia? What were, 
were some of the issues you were working on? So, yeah, I mean, at first when I, when I was um, uh, practicing as a public defender, not surprisingly, there were, they tended to be criminal law, criminal procedure uh, issues. But when I was a public defender, I also had this interesting uh, First Amendment issue. I had a client who was arrested for engaging in, in political protests and involving civil disobedience, and, and we raised um, a whole slew of First Amendment issues. And it was one of the things that actually made me start thinking more seriously about academia. I wrote this brief. I spent a long time researching it, and, and the, you know, the trial-level judge, it wasn't his fault at all. You know, they, they're so overwhelmed with a number of cases. You know, he kind of flipped through it in five minutes and, and, and denied my motion that we moved on. And that was it. I said, well, that was a really interesting issue. And, and I wanted to kind of go back and unpack it and spend the time to think about it and to research it. And it's one of the things that makes me feel like I have the best job in the world. I mean, I, I get paid, you know, to essentially research, to, to think, to read, uh, to teach. It's, uh, it, it, from my perspective, it, it, just, it just can't be beat. And one of the things that you didn't mention is that you get paid to write, and you've written several books. You have to be one of the most prolific faculty members that we have here at Rutgers. How many books have you written? I've written seven. I'm currently working on my eighth, and then I also have a case book uh, in addition to that. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to talk about some of the books that you've written? Sure. Most of, um, really all of the books except for my current project now, which, is, which has not been published yet, but all of them have involved uh, LGBT rights issues of one kind or another. My first book called The Morality of, uh, of Gay Rights, I published in 2003, sort of got me in this, into this sort of exploration of LGBT issues. And the reason for writing that book was I, I noticed that the, what the movement was asking of the government was changing with marriage equality. I wrote this book really mostly in the, in the second half of the 1990s. And it, it wasn't, at the time, the movement was sort of in transition, no longer really just asking to be left alone not only sort of making kind of, you know, what scholars would call sort of negative liberty claims, but making more affirmative claims like, okay, now you have to recognize our relationships as marital. And sort of that, that shift, I think, was I found to be a very interesting one. And sort of how do you justify that as a matter of political theory um, when, you're not, when, you're, you're, when your theory and your understanding of liberty is demanding something of the government? as opposed to simply asking the government to leave you alone. And that's sort of what, what, what led me to write that project. That was a fairly academic book, and, and one of the things that I've tried to do since that first book is to write, and this varies by book, some of them are more academic-y than others, um, but I have tried to write for a broader audience, and that's one of the reasons why I have spent more time over the last decade, decade or so writing books as opposed to law review uh, articles, which tend to be read by, by a narrower uh, group of readers. But my focus has been you know, almost exclusively on legal regulation of sexual orientation. And you've written a lot about LGBTQ families. Do you want to talk about that work? Sure. So I have a couple of books on that topic. Um, the first book is called The Right to Be uh, Parents, and it really explores the way in which family law outside of marriage dealt with same-sex relationships and families. And one of the interesting things that happened in the trajectory of LGBT rights in this country, unlike in, in Europe for the most part, is that in the United States, parenting rights were recognized before marital rights. 
in many Western European countries, it was the opposite. And, and that book really sort of explores the history of the advocacy uh, and the history, quite frankly, of, of, the, of the families in the 70s and 80s that kind of turned to the law as a way of, of, of protecting, if not the quote-unquote horizontal relationship between the two adults, at least the vertical relationship between the adults and the children. And, and for the most part, you know, some pretty revolutionary changes were made in that area of the law. The second book on family law issues that I wrote uh, is called Same-Sex Marriage and Children, and as the title suggests, that that book focused on the relationship between the two, and in particular the way in which kind of the children argument was the last argument still standing by the time the case, the issue reached the Supreme Court in terms of uh, opponents of marriage equality and kind of relying on the impact on children that the recognition of same-sex marriage would have, and I kind of took a kind of a historical perspective the different ways in which parenting-based arguments were, have been used in history to deny legal relationship recognition among the adults. It's not a pretty history, a lot of racial discrimination, a lot of animus towards disabled individuals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so those were the two books that covered that topic. Yeah, talk a little bit about that history. Yeah, well, you know, it's so interesting. One of the things that I have noticed um, and that I've written about is in trying to kind of push back against is the idea of what I call LGBT rights exceptionalism, sort of this idea that so the issues that come up when LGBT rights are different or are separate from other civil rights and equality issues. And I don't think that has been the case at all. And, 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 and so, for example, you know, restrictions on interracial marriage were traditionally defended, not only, you know, based on um, sort of, in my view, um, misreadings of, of, of religious doctrine, but also um, uh, specious arguments about we need to keep the races apart in marriage in order to benefit or protect children, which really was exactly the same kinds of arguments that were being raised uh, decades later in the context of sexual orientation. Now, you know, many opponents of, of marriage equality would say, wait a minute, but race is different than sexual orientation. But I argue in a couple of my books, that's that's the that's $64,000 question, right? I mean, and is it that different, really, at the end of the day, um, in terms of the arbitrariness when you're making decisions based on race or based on sexual orientation? And do you think those lines of argument have helped universalize the LGBTQ rights cause? I think they have. I think the, the one of the reasons why the progress that we have seen both in the courts and in the wider society, and it's an interesting sort of relationship yeah. Yeah. between progress in the courts and in the wider society that we can talk about if you'd like. But yes. I, I do think that there has been a, a recognition of, of universality, that, that this is about fundamental human rights. This is not about uh, anything that's particularly unique about about sexuality or about sexual orientation or LGBTQ people as as a group. Do you think in the United States we have been sort of a more of a leader in the LGBTQ human rights space, or do you think we've borrowed more from other countries that have uh, moved more rapidly than we have? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, the, for example, with marriage, uh, with the push for marriage equality, I think the advocacy came earlier than in some European countries and some Latin American countries, for example. I think actual meaningful progress happened quicker in other countries than it happened here. But And I haven't written about this. I'm not an expert about this, but, I, but I've thought about the way in which advocacy within the United States even when it wasn't leading to positive reform results in the United States, might have had sort of positive effects 
in other countries. And, you know, what the Supreme Court has to say about equality resonates around the world. And, and so in that way, I think other countries, I think other countries, uh, and this is, I think, unfortunate, but I think other countries pay more attention to what's going on here than what we pay in attention that we pay about what's going on in those countries in terms of progress yeah. with civil rights. Um, I want to talk about your latest book because I think it's it's a fascinating topic, and as someone who has practiced civil rights law, you know I, I think that the focus on corporate America has often been in terms of the wrongdoing of corporate America and how corporate America impedes social justice. But your book actually takes a different tack, and it's been something I've been thinking a lot about. Um, it's called the Queering of Corporate America how big business went from LGBTQ adversary to ally. Talk about why you wanted to write this book. So the, uh, the idea for the book came to me in around 2013, 2014, when I started noticing the way in which large corporations were coming out against legislative uh, measures that seemed, in my opinion, to be backlashes against LGBT equality. And also, uh, another form of backlash that received a lot of national attention was the North Carolina House right, Bill 2 right. that required, essentially, individuals to use public bathrooms and public buildings, government-owned buildings, that match their birth certificate gender. And I noticed corporations, large corporations, kind of taking a, a leading role in criticizing these laws, in making it clear that the laws represented values that were inconsistent with their, their corporate values, and in, in pushing back and asking for the laws to be repealed. And um, that got me thinking about kind of why corporations were doing this, and it made me go back to the early days of the post-Stonewall LGBT rights movement to focus on the way in which activists, early activists in particular, uh, kind of targeted corporations for activism. This was a history that, even though I'm somewhat familiar with the history of the movement, I didn't, I had not really focused on before. And so it, w it, w it was what was happening in 2013, 2014 that then led me back to the 1970s in terms of my research to to kind of uncover the, the history that I talk about in the first half of the book. And there's been a real sea change in terms of the approach of corporate America to LGBTQ rights. It's dramatic, right? Dramatic. I mean, you know, in, in the book I explain how in the 70s, 80s, and 90s it was it was a matter of LGBT constant LGBT rights activism aimed at corporations, trying to get to corporations to understand that the way in which they were treating their employees, gender minority employees, and sexual orientation minority employees, was was wrong. It was unequal treatment. And that took, so, that took about three decades of activism. It was generally successful. Corporations started to change their internal policies. And then around the turn of the century, this interesting phenomenon that I talk about in the second half of the book happened, where corporations went from being targets of activism to kind of sources of activism on their own. They became more engaged in the political process, coming out in favor of LGBT equality. Now, they were never too far out in front, like they were initially pushing for domestic partnership, for example, before marriage equality. They were at first pushing for sexual orientation, anti-discrimination laws, as opposed to gender identity discrimination laws. But, but for the most part, you know, by the time we do get to uh, 2013, 2014, there seems to have been this consensus in large, big business corporate America that LGBTQ discrimination is wrong, and that it's wrong not only within the walls of the corporations, but that it's wrong when the government does it as well. Do you want to talk about some of the 
most notable examples of corporate America being a leader in this space? Yeah. So, so the way that the way that I would the way that I would put it is that corporate America uh, took important active roles, but pushed by activists all the time. I don't want to suggest that corporate America w- was doing this on its own. Uh, without significant pressure on the part of activists. But an example would be what happened in the 1990s with domestic partnership uh, benefits uh, policies recognized by corporations. Really, many, many years before, certainly many years before we had same-sex marriage across the country in the United States, we had most large corporations in the United States providing their LGBTQ employees with domestic partnership benefits. And, and that was as a result of two things. I think, I think corporations looking out for their bottom lines, and corporations, of course, always care about their bottom lines, realize that domestic partnership benefits, number one, signal to consumers. And you know, starting in the late 1980s into the 1990s, we see this new phenomenon in the United States of consumers wanting to spend their dollars in, with companies that reflect their values. And so having domestic partnership benefits was a way of signaling to progressive consumers, hey, we're on your side. But it was also a way of, of corporations retaining some of their more competent and attracting uh, competent um, and effective employees because when some corporations were offering the benefits and others were not, and you were LGBTQ, you know, this was an important factor. Not even, it, it might have been you were single, maybe you didn't even need the benefits, um, but, it's, but it says a lot about, or it said a lot back then when only some of the corporations had the benefits about what kind of a culture, corporate culture it was. And so I think, I think relationship recognition is an example of corporations, of progress uh, in, with LGBT equality issues happening in the private sector before it happened in the public sector, uh, and in particular when it came to actually laws and regulations. And how would this compare to sort of the diversity argument that's also been adopted by many corporations with respect to the hiring and retention of, of racial minorities and ethnic minorities? I think that was part and parcel of it. I think this, this became, I think LGBT activists who focused on corporate policies were successful in getting corporations to understand the term diversity expansively enough to include LGBT rights. You know, when, as you know very, very well, what happened in the 70s and 1980s and into the 90s, there was a shift in corporate America. Before, we were talking about affirmative action. Then we were talking about diversity. And, you know, and there were some problems with that shift from a progressive perspective, right? Because affirmative action is intended or goes to sort of more structural inequalities. But there were some benefits. And one benefit was that, that I think corporations started focusing not just on race, but also uh, on gender, uh, on sexual orientation, on disability uh, as well, within the, within the umbrella of diversity. Now, you said this was a product of some external activism and agitation, but there was also internal activism and agitation as well, right? There, there was, and that played a very important role as well. And, you know, one of the things that I do in the book is, in contrast, the activism in the 70s and 80s, which was almost exclusively from the outside. In the 70s, it was just trying to get corporations to stop 
you know, a brazen uh, and obvious discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Uh, you know, the whole thing about you know, we will actually we will not hire you if you're gay kind of thing. Uh, in the 80s, of course, the focus shifted to AIDS, and, um, and most of that activism came from the outside, trying to get corporations, pushing corporations to do the right thing in, in, in essentially treating HIV in the same way in which they treated uh, other medical conditions. But that, that changes in the 1990s with domestic partnership benefits because, that's right, most of that activism comes from the inside. And it's, it's grassroots activism, but it's a grassroots activism of a, of a very different kind. It's, it's quiet. It's internal. It's one conversation at a time. But you see, and I, and I, um, I talk about this in the book, the, the, all of the major corporations that adopted domestic partnership benefits between 1992 and 1996, they all had LGBT employee groups, internal ones. And back then, very few companies had those groups. After that, and you know, corporations tend to do this, especially when their competitors start to adopt certain policies, there's a little bit of, there's not a little bit, there's quite a bit of sort of a herd mentality. And then, um, and then it becomes easier for activists because then corporations sort of start following each other. And we're talking about Fortune 500 companies mostly? Yes, you were talking mostly about Fortune 500 companies. The, the book really focuses on, on, on corporate America, on large, large corporations. Yeah, there's more, more diversity, I think, among smaller corporations and mid-sized corporations. There, I think you have, it's certainly these days, uh, more neutrality. They just stay away from these issues. So sometimes when you have, especially with small corporations, um, they've actually been uh, some opponents of LGBT rights uh, as well. So. Did you track um, how these changes may have coincided with philosophical, juridical changes in the way that corporations are viewed in, in, in this country? Yeah, well, you know, many things happened in the last uh, quarter of the 20th century, and one of them was really the, uh, I don't want to say birth of the corporate social rights uh, responsibility movement, but, but I would say the reawakening of it, um, because uh, there had been previous variations of the corporate social responsibility movement. But, but yes, I think, you know, in the late 20th century, you had people... Uh, who cared nothing about LGBT rights issues, but thinking about the corporate responsibility uh, of, cor- of, of, of these large business entities that, that ha- and this has been a perennial disagreement in American political, philosophical, and juridical life, as you know, what is the role of corporations? What, what is their main uh, purpose? And we seem to go from eras in which um, there is this wide consensus that their purpose is only to make money for their shareholders. And then we bounce back, especially after difficult economic times, not coincidentally. And we start, I think this is what's what's been happening over the last few years since the 2008 economic crisis. We have more people talking about, you know, corporate responsibility and the corporations themselves uh, issuing statements um, through the Business Roundtable and other associations. Uh, talking about their need and their responsibility to make sure that the interests of not just shareholders, but employees, communities where they have manufacturing plants or, 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 or other employment facilities, uh, the responsibility to the environment, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think LGBT rights kind of fits nicely within that, within that framework. The point that I make in the book that I, I found, depending on the audience that I'm speaking to, somewhat controversial is that while the bottom line considerations I think are necessary, they're not sufficient, or at least they don't fully explain the way, for example, that corporations have over the last five or six years 
have come out so strongly against these uh, anti-LGBT legal measures. And my thesis in the book is that I think think that long history of activism, the decades-long history of activism, had had a normative effect, persuaded many corporate leaders that not only was it the right thing to do for their business, and here comes the controversial part that some people take issue with, especially folks on the left, to say, I think corporations also did it because it was the right thing to do. And so it's not enough, but I think it, it expl- it's one of the factors that I think explains corporate behavior. In yeah, this think, area, no, I think that's I think that's really interesting, I, and I don't think it can be denied that corporate expression on some of these social issues as a counterweight to state discriminatory overreach has been very influential, and I think that's something that we probably did not see 20 years ago. And you know, certainly, if you're taking a position against state legislation that you view as discriminatory, you run the risk of losing customers as well who support that particular piece of state legislation. So, you know, I think that, you know, I think it's probably fair to say that that many corporations have shown courage or the individuals Mm -hmm. within the corporations Mm -hmm. have demonstrated courage. I'm not gonna treat a corporation as a (laughs) uh, (laughs) non-existent human entity, but, you know, the, the leadership of the corporations have shown much courage in terms of jumping into these issues. No, that's, I think that's absolutely correct. And one of the interesting things politically that I talk about in, in the book is the way in which the way in which LGBT rights issues and corporate support of LGBT equality has in some ways uh, fractured the Reagan coalition of corporate America, uh, laissez-faire, we want less regulation. Uh, on the one hand, and social conservatives, traditional conservatives on the other, who have really, since the Reagan years, been a very powerful political bloc. LGBT issues in red states have has divided that coalition to the point where, you know, and I quote some of the statements made by conservative religious activists in Arkansas, in Mississippi, in Indiana, and the way in which they talk about corporate takeover of the political system in those states. And, you know, I put that takeover in quotes because I think that's that's an exaggeration completely when it comes to these issues. But you would think they are are almost Marxists um, in their skepticism of corporate America. And that's coming from people on the right. And so I think for progressives, that is an interesting opportunity to, to think about LGBT issues as a way of weakening that, 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 um, that coalition between laissez-faire, libertarian, pro-corporate folks, and more traditional social conservatives. And then, you know, as a civil rights lawyer, I've seen the coalition fragmented on another axis, and that's between the laissez-faire conservatives mm-hmm. and those pushing for religious freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was involved in the Abercrombie versus Fitch case, which went to the Supreme Court. U.S. Chamber of Commerce was on one side, um, the religious groups that are traditional allies were on the other side, and I found that very interesting. I know that you've done a lot of work on, on the First Amendment and religion. I want to talk about that, but I think, you know, I think this is a good example of sort of how what we may lazily view as political coalitions are just that, coalitions mm-hmm. that often involve 
conflicting interests right. or conflicting views. And I think, you know, and, and when there are conflicting views and conflicting interests, those are opportunities, I think, right. for, uh, for progressives who might, in other contexts, want to try to undermine or weaken that coalition. Yeah. yeah. What has been some of the reaction to your book? Um, are you getting blowback from progressives, or is there sort of a sea change also to understand that sometimes corporations can kind of function as allies in the social justice space? Yeah, I mean, I have gotten some, um, I've had some emails and I've had some conversations when I've spoken about the book and some pro to some progressive audiences, I have gotten some pushback and some, and some skepticism. And, and, and in the particular context of LGBT issues, there has been some concerns, for example, and I completely share these concerns, I should say, the way in which corporate America has kind of taken over the marketing of uh, Stonewall uh, LGBT rights uh, uh, parades in the United States. You know, now they're brought to you by Bank of America and AT&T. And I think we, I think it's very important for progressives to go into whatever coalition they decide to have with corporations to go in there with with clear and open eyes <laughs> about 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 corporate interests. And what I, the position that I try to defend in the book is a politically pragmatic one. I mean, I think there are people on the left who say that any um, work with corporate America and coalition work undermines the objectives of the progressive movement. And um, I don't agree with that, but I respect that point of view. And I think it has to do, I think, also with your objectives, right? I mean, it, it, if what you really want to do, if the, the objective really is to place significant limitations on the capitalist economic system or to replace it with a socialist system, then I agree that maybe working with corporate America in any capacity might be problematic because it might not get you where you want to go. But if, but if the objective is not to replace capitalism with, an, with another economic system, but, but to manage capitalism and to make capitalism more humane and to think about the many ways in which unrestricted capitalism or unregulated capitalism causes harm, um, then I think there is plenty of room to um, do coalition work with corporations as long, again, as long as we're doing it, uh, completely understanding, number one, what the corporate bottom line interests are, that they're only gonna go so far with you. And just as importantly, I think it's very, very important to criticize corporate allies when, when corporate allies deserve criticism. And, and even when it comes to LGBT issues, you know, the, the, the very same legislators were, were supporting the kinds of laws that you were mentioning earlier at the state level that corporations were coming so strongly against. They were being funded primarily, because most of them were Republican, primarily by the very same corporations that then were criticizing the laws that these legislators were supporting. And, 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 and I think the LGBT rights movement has not brought enough attention to corporate funding uh, of these uh, of these politicians, and I don't I, I don't know why, and I can't prove this, but but my hypothesis has been some reservation to criticize your your allies, and I think that's problematic, and I and I think when when there is corporate wrongdoing or there is corporate actions that undermine the the public good, I think it's very important for progressives to criticize uh, corporations. And I think one thing that's very clear in your book and from talking to you today is that this wasn't just a question of a CEO or CEO having an epiphany. This was a product of, of activism. And I want to use that as sort of a springboard to talk about the LGBTQ rights movement generally because I had a conversation with a student class the other day about the 1971 Griggs versus Duke Power decision, which was unanimous. And this is, of course, a very transformative decision. Many view it as 
as transformative as, as uh, Brown v. Board of Education. Um, and it was an 8-0 decision. It was supported by the Nixon Solicitor General's Office. It was written by the often forgotten Chief Justice Warren Burger. And one of my students said, well, the politics were different there then in 1971. They would never come up with that decision today because the politics were different. And in a way, basically acknowledging that courts, while they you know, may work through the analysis and try to use some of the doctrinal tools available, are also embedded in a greater societal context and attentive to what's going on around them. And so I mentioned, you know, I mentioned Obergefell and I said, look, in our own day, you've seen such a sea change with respect to the LGBTQ rights movement in terms of just really a shifting context um, where these decisions are, are, are reached by the Supreme Court and lower courts. I want to talk about what contributed to that political change, what contributed to that cultural change, because I think it's a really important um, I, I mean, I think it, it potentially provides a very important lesson for all social justice movements. Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. It's a, it's a big question, and mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very important one. So, I, you know, I tend to shy away from um, sort of one or two factor answers to questions like the one that you just posed. So I think, uh, so some factors that explain a case like Obergefell or the Supreme Court um, recognizes the right of same-sex couples uh, to marry. Um, so one factor, I think, has to do with being able to fit what you're asking for of, of the courts with a narrative about individual rights and equality. And we spoke a little bit uh, before about the sort of the universalization of LGBT uh, equality claims. Um, so I think that is one factor. Uh, another factor, um, and, and this is, I think, reflected in Justice Kennedy's majority opinion in Obergefell, was a way in which it was possible to defend marriage equality as radical as the idea seemed, especially early on, from a very traditional perspective, right? That, you know, Justice Kennedy's majority opinion talks about this is not about undermining the institution of marriage, this is about strengthening it. Um, so, that, so that, I think, helps. But I think what also helped was the national conversation that was had for 20 plus years from the moment in which the Hawaii Supreme Court back in 1994 sort of shocked the world when it raised the possibility that same-sex marriage bans might be unconstitutional, in that case under the state constitution. Um, in, in, the, in, the, in the way in which that victory in the courts, as surprising as it was, led to literally millions of conversations across the country about the role of sexual minorities in our society, about the basic question of whether sexual minorities, uh, their relationships, their families, their attachments, their children, are the same, morally speaking, as the, the relationships and families of heterosexuals. And so you, I think you do have, over a 20-year period, uh, a lot of it driven by the litigation, but a lot of it not taking place inside the courts uh, of a conversation that, that was had with a growing number of people becoming persuaded after they thought about it. They were forced to think about it. They didn't want to think about it, right? Because for them, that was part of the problem early on, right? Because any discussion of LGBT equality claims immediately got translated, oh, you just want to talk about sex, right? I don't want to, you know, I don't want to talk about sex. 
people should be able to do whatever they want in the privacy of their home, right? It's when they take it outside the doors of their home, that's when it becomes problematic. So trying to persuade people, right, that to the extent that people are being discriminated outside of the privacy of their home, that's, that's, that might matter to the society. I think that, that is a third and a, a contributing factor to explaining a case like Obergefell. You know, to put, it, put, to put it simply, people's minds were changed, or even more basically, people thought about it for the first time. They had never really thought about the moral equivalence between same-sex relationships and different, and different sex relationships. I think the litigation forced people to think about it. Yeah. And it, it also feels like this happened one story at a time, and I know that you know, the dreamer movement, the disability rights movement has drawn inspiration from the LGBTQ movement mm -hmm. in terms of how they how they tell their story um, very publicly in a way to, you know, bring together, bring people together to, at a, you know, sort of a transcendental human level. And it's very, right now, it's, it's very intentional in terms of like, you know, we're, you know, I may, I may have been born to undocumented parents, but I'm a human being, these are my stories, these are my dreams. This is who I am, and I'm not going to let anybody else own my story. And so much of that seems like it is almost deliberately drawn from the LGBTQ movement. I think that's right, and I think I think a pivotal year for that was 2008, when um, when the voters in California approved Proposition 8, amending the state constitution banning same-sex marriage, and um, the stra the political strategy uh, going into that election on the part of many LGBT advocates was, let's not talk about the personal stories, let's not talk about the personal lives, because that's gonna remind people of sex and they don't wanna think about sex when they're in the voting booth. Let's talk about equality, right? Let's mm -hmm. just focus on the legal rights and equal treatment under the law. And it turned out that even in a progressive state like California, there's only so much you can do with quote unquote equality talk, right? You have to humanize it. Um, and there's the universality point we were talking about at the early, earlier in the hour. There's a sort of, when, when I recognize you as a human being, that's when I am ready to say, okay, you deserve the same rights that I have. And you can talk about equality as a legal philosophical concept until you turn blue. But if you don't get the person to recognize you as a, fun, as a human being, as a, as a fellow human being, it doesn't really matter because then, because then you're going to be able to come up with all sorts of arguments where, well, wait a minute, your relationship is different or your legal status is different or your place of, you know, but those, it turns out that those things don't actually matter or shouldn't actually matter. Yeah. And then, you know, I think there's some, you know, really famous cases of, of well-known conservatives who have become just very strong and vigorous allies of the LGBTQ movement, mm -hmm. um, Ted Olson, for instance, and a lot of this grew out of you know the the their personal stories of having family members come out to them and them you know just sort of expressing the love that parents feel for the children that we feel for our siblings um, in a in a broader political context. That's right, and and in many ways I think we can trace this uh, back to to the AIDS epidemic, mm -hmm. and, and I, because I think uh, AIDS advocacy and the way in which the LGBT community came together to protect its own at a time when the government um, was either doing nothing or going out of its way to make it more difficult to take care of people with HIV mm -hmm. at a time when there were absolutely no legal protections for LGBT people or their relationships. The way in which the community took care of themselves, of, of, of other members of the community, the way in which partners took care of each other, 
I think um, uh, uh, was very important in starting that process of education. For those people who are open-minded enough to say, oh, wait a minute, right? The way in which this man is taking care of his partner of 25 years is it's so different from the way in which I would take care of my wife or my husband mm -hmm. in an opposite sex relationship if they were sick. Um, and I think that's, you know, that, that started a lot of this, you know, um, and it's really, you know, this is, you, you can, you can see this as a trajectory. You have, you have AIDS in the eighties, you have, you have lesbians in particular, uh, having children, um, uh, biological children, um, uh, uh, and then asking the law to recognize those relationships. And then you have, and then you have marriage in the 1990s and sort of, it's a, it's a trajectory and it's one that in hindsight kind of makes sense. You know, in hindsight, there were times when it seemed like it was going too slowly. I, I must say now, you know, when I first started teaching in 1995, Romer versus Evans, which is the Supreme Court from 1996, the first time recognized that gay people have constitutional rights, had not been decided yet. And that, this, that case was decided the year after I started teaching. 25 years later, now we have, for the most part, you know, there are still problems, including, of course, uh, President administration's policy uh, towards transgender individuals in the military. But for the most part, we've come a very long way to guaranteeing de jure equality for sexual minorities and to a lesser extent for transgender individuals. But as the race example shows us and as the gender example shows us, de jure equality is only part of the battle. Uh, actual equality uh, takes much longer. So maybe that's a nice uh, jumping off point to discuss what's next for the LGBTQ um, rights movement. I think um, uh, uh, focusing uh, in on, uh, on dealing with the backlash, uh, which we talked about at the state level, which I think we're seeing now at the, at the, at the federal government level, uh, is going to be crucial. Uh, I think it's also going to be very important uh, for the movement to uh, uh, move beyond just protecting certain identities, uh, categories. I see it in my kids' generation in terms of sexuality and in terms of gender, um, uh, so much more fluid. Um, and um, I am still of the generation that kinds of, kind of thinks about sexuality and gender categories, or certainly I was educated to think about them as, as boxes, right? You're either in or you're out. And in some ways, as you know very well from your work, Categories are essential to making anti-discrimination claims um, under current law. You have to be, you know, um, uh, of a certain race or a certain religion to make out your claim. I, but I think the world is changing, and and the way in which young people, in particular, are thinking about gender, thinking about sexuality, thinking about race, is much more fluid. And I think that I think the movement, the LGBT movement, would be well served to start to think about the implications of that fluidity when it comes to categories and, that, and, and how to translate that into legal protections because it might be that the traditional anti-discrimination statutes that are so category-based, you're either gay or you're not, and if you're gay, you're protected, right? Um, or if you're discriminated against, you're gay because you're gay, you're protected. I think it's going to be important to sort of to, to focus on sort of what I like to call sometimes sort of sort of a post-identity understanding of gender, sexuality, and race. And I think it, it's going to it's going to create some regulatory stress. Um, and you know, I I think that that you talked about gender, but I think as people start to um, you know translate some of these um, contemporary um, identity frameworks to race and and, and to other categories. It's it's gonna 
be very interesting, um, and it'll move well beyond, I think, what people contemplated in 1964. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what else do you see for the future? Well, you know, I, I, in my, my current project, I'm, I'm broadening my lens a little bit and for the first time not focusing exclusively on LGBT rights issues. And, and when I'm thinking about the future, I'm starting to think about uh, the post-Trump administration future. And um, in my current project, I'm, I'm thinking about the ways in which progressive politics might uh, benefit from uh, the Trump years in terms of, in particular, the constitutional lessons that I think um, have been highlighted by the way in which Mr. Trump uh, and his allies have governed. I mean, I think the Trump years in many ways have reinforced for progressives what they already knew, right? In terms of constitutional law, the importance of uh, a strong equal protection law, strong protection for reproductive rights, which are under uh, increasing threat. Uh, in many parts of the country. But in this, in this current uh, book project that I'm working on right now, I'm trying to think about those lessons that have become important after Trump that, that progressives might have not been thinking too much about before. And so, for example, um, uh, and this I think has become crystal clear over the last three or four months, I think separation of powers, and in particular the need to rein in the imperial presidency, not just in matters of national security, not just in matter of foreign affairs, which I think liberals and progressives for the most part have done a good job since the Vietnam War of trying to keep the president's powers when it comes to national security and fighting terrorism um, restrained. But I think we need to add to that now. I think Trump has made clear that progressives need to add reigning in presidential power as a political objective. Uh, regardless of what the president is trying to do, regardless of who the president is, um, uh, I think we, I think progressives need to prioritize separation of powers, which is not, you know, not a very sexy topic in many ways, and not an easy one to translate politically. But, but I think it's something that progressives need to focus on. And, 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 and perhaps more controversially, I, I'm also in this book going to argue, I think, that that given how important the states, the progressive states, have been over the last three or four years in uh, immigration sanctuary issues and trying to resist the um, administration's uh, environmental rollbacks that I think progressives need to think about federalism differently than they did before Trump. I think before Trump, categorically, many progressives would say federalism just is just a, a, a charade argument to defend racism. And of course, there's a lot of that in our history. But the states, I think, blue states over the last three years have proven, or at least have raised the question that maybe federalism as a principle is something that progressives should be thinking about in terms of limiting uh, federal authority. Because the one thing that I think Trump, the Trump administration has, has made clear uh, to many progressives, or should have made clear, is that the federal government is not always on the side of angels, and that, and that we need constitutional restraints on federal authority and not just on state authority. And in some respects, you know, I almost feel like you're a, a very classic scholar because you're actually looking for principles, a principled basis both for federalism, a principled basis both for separation of powers. I think, you know, I think there are many attorneys and maybe even some academics who will say, 
look, let's use whatever levers work in that particular situation. But what I really like about your project is you're digging really deep and looking for some really foundational principles that will protect us all. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the role that I see myself uh, as a scholar. There are a lot of different scholarship roles, and and you know, and certainly a lot of my LGBT um, uh, scholarship has been advocacy based. Yeah. But here I am trying, and the working title of my book is is Principles Matter, and, and so uh, I am trying to think a little bit more uh, uh, deeply, and I'm trying to. Can persuade. The objective really will be to persuade progressives to think about these issues, not when they're litigating in court, right? Because if you're an advocate, you've got to look out for the interests of your client. You've got to make whatever arguments you think are going to are going to advance the interests of your client. But outside of that of, of that context, I would like, for example, when it comes to presidential power issues, whether the, whether the president, for example, should be granted emergency powers to move. Uh, congressionally allocated funds, um, which we're living through right now in the way in which uh, the Trump administration is using its emergency powers uh, to undermine, in my opinion, congressional intent and will. Um, I think we should be thinking about not only the short-term political policy objectives, but we need to be thinking there will be another liberal president at some point and, and, and progressives are going to want to give that liberal president a lot of power. But what they need to think about is what's gonna, what's gonna, what will happen with that power when there is gonna be another Trump-like president, as I believe there will be again. I think this, this, this movement, that, this political moment that Trump has tapped into is not going to go away whenever he leaves office. And, I, and, and so I th- uh, my objective with this new, new project is to encourage uh, progressives to think a little bit more in the long term as opposed to the short term. That's great. Um, any, any last words, any final thoughts? I'm glad we finally were able to convince you to come to the podcast. It's my pleasure to be on the podcast. I congratulate you for having the podcast. I think it's a wonderful way of, of having uh, Rutgers-related people talk about uh, the law. And I very much appreciate your leadership of the school. Thank you. Thank you. Um, The book is called The Querying of Corporate America, How Big Business Went from LGBTQ Adversary to Ally, uh, Professor Carlos Ball. And this is The Power of Attorney. Thank you very much. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations minutes from Philadelphia, New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more about Rutgers Law by visiting law.rutgers.edu.